they they took me down and I remember going into that room and it was dark yeah. and it was hot. Yep. It was so hot. He was just tiny and thin, so thin, so just not what you would expect a baby to look like. He did not look obviously what we were expecting. He's he's a one pound fourteen baby. He's skeletal. He didn't have ears. I was like, what? Why doesn't he have ears? Because the cartilage right. hadn't hadn't grown yet, right? He so. didn't have a bum. No, no fat. He, you know what I mean? Like these things that are so mind-boggling to you when you're just used to seeing a full-term well, baby. You don't. You don't think of it. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inui, and Métis peoples, and we're grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. We would also like to acknowledge the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples and the barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. One in 12 babies is born prematurely in Canada. The field of neonatology has evolved rapidly in the last decade, with advances in providing fortified nutrition and improved management of respiratory distress leading to improved survival rates in premature babies. Fortunately, this means a much larger number of premature babies and newborns are able to survive. But this also means that we now have more sick babies in the neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU, than ever before. In this episode, we discuss everything from the common illnesses premature and newborn babies face, the experience of NICU families, as well as the work being done by healthcare professionals and scientists to advance research and the medical care available to their tiny patients. My name is Atifa. And I'm Sonica. This is episode 111 of Raw Talk Podcast. Neonatology, neo means new, new babies. That's what we take care of. Babies who are um, newly born um, up until, you know, 28 days of life. Um, and these babies can be either very small preterm babies or they can be term babies, um, babies who are born but may have some problems either with not all their organs being developed properly or having some difficulty with breathing or stooling um, or urinating. So any baby that has any organ that is not functioning properly usually comes to the neonatal intensive care unit soon after birth. Our preterm babies, now let me just let you know what term and preterm is. So term babies are babies who are born anywhere between 37 and let's say 42 weeks, but usually we don't want the babies to go much longer than 40 weeks before a labor is induced. You just heard from Dr. Estelle Goda, a physician scientist and the head of the Division of Neonatology at the Hospital for Sick Children. One of her many jobs involves taking care of the sickest babies in the NICU, so we asked her to highlight how neonatal care has changed over the last few decades. Well, for one, uh, I guess 10 years ago, the limit of viability was around 24 weeks. The limit of viability now is about 22 weeks. So already that's a big difference. These babies, however, they may survive, but they can survive with um, some, some problems. Often they can have lung problems um, because of the immaturity of their lungs. They're uh, they can have brain um, maldevelopment, or they can have, it's not uncommon that babies um, who are sick around the time of birth, who are very preterm, will have what we call intraventricular hemorrhage, which is a small bleeding in the brain. And all these sorts of things um, modify how the baby may be able to not only survive, but survive um, with, with his neurodevelopmental outcome and ability to walk. So those things are, are very much taken into, into account. 
Behind every patient in the NICU is a family and their unique struggles during a stressful time. We spoke to Kimberly and Christina Foreman, who graciously shared their personal experiences in the NICU with us. Let me start off by saying it wasn't an easy, easy pregnancy. And we, having not had any children prior to, just started thinking it was the way pregnancy was, that it wasn't, you know, pregnancy wasn't easy. And, and we didn't really understand where things were going. And I attended our local hospital for the first test um, was told that the baby, um, we had failed the, the first non-stress. And then they sent me for an ultrasound um, and he was not performing enough respirations per minute uh, that they wanted to see. And um, I was told that I was gonna be admitted. No, <laughs> no, this made sense. I think it's important to note that we had a lot of faith in our medical system at the time and in our care providers. And we, we sort of blindly went into things thinking we were going to be taken care of and that we didn't need to probe further, ask too many pressing questions. Every time Kim went for an appointment, just a, just a regular checkup, the doctor there kept saying to her, are you sure you don't have high blood pressure? And so there was a, there was a failure there because you know, at, at the end of the day, um, maybe things would have been different, but we certainly had no idea what the outcome was going to be. And we'd never been given any kind of indication that the outcome would be anything than uh, a normal pregnancy. So I was admitted locally and was there for a few days and was totally under the impression I was going home, like completely under the impression that they were going to get my blood pressure under control and that um, I would be on bed rest and would serve out my pregnancy. The remainder of it, they said they may induce me about a month early. About three days in, four days in, the high risk doctor locally came in and said, this baby is coming sooner rather than later and I don't want you to deliver here. And this just blindsided me, I was alone. We didn't even know we were being sent to Sunnybrook. We actually were told we were going we were, to Sinai. So then we found out Sunnybrook. And I said, what is Sunnybrook? I'd never even heard of this Christina's hospital. from Montreal. Right. I don't hear about a lot of things. I knew it was a trauma center, but I definitely didn't know they delivered babies there. And I definitely didn't know they had a level three NICU there. Yeah. So up to L&D there, they hook me up. They do all the things. Uh, say, okay, we're not going to deliver you tonight. You're going to stay on high risk. Christina wasn't allowed to stay in my room. It was four o'clock in the morning. So we had no idea what was happening. So then the next morning, we were actually supposed to get married. And that morning, I had an ultrasound. Um, <clears throat> I did not feel well. The officiant was going to come to the hospital to marry us because she was a preemie mom. And she was going to come to Sunnybrook and marry us. And I said to Christina, I said, something's wrong it's not happening the, we the baby's going to come and so sure enough I literally was about to eat my breakfast and a nurse come in that said stop yeah. eating <laughs> we're moving you back to L&D no one said why we were moved back to L&D rapidly and he discovered on that ultrasound that the baby was shunting blood into his brain I believe they knew he was in distress and then I was actually also going into help so the preeclampsia was progressing and I was going in to help. And so I was moved to L&D where I spent the day. Um, they had a NICU doctor come and speak to us. It was a resident who came in and, and gave us these, we were handed these documents and there was a discussion, but you know, when you're experiencing trauma, you're going through trauma, you do not process or, or take in information the same way you would if you were under, if you were calm and under normal circumstances. So I have no idea what they said. <laughs> I, I remember her saying to us that he could be blind. Oh, he could deaf. be deaf. They told us they expected him. Our local hospital had said about three pounds. Um, we were told maybe two and a half. And then the night kind of progressed. I was getting sicker. And so the decision was then made to deliver her via emergency C-section um, because it was determined at that point that it was better for the baby to be out and to be in, well, better for baby and mommy. So, and I went pretty messed up, had the baby. So then I, I asked them, I said, how big is he? And they were like 870 grams. 
They're like, it's about a pound 14. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. They said he was going to be two and a half pounds. Like, and I, I, it did not compute. That didn't, there was, that didn't make any sense to me at all that he could be that small and that he could be alive. Well, so I was invited to go into the recess room when I went to go and see him and he was sort of laying there kind of moving and um, the nurse encouraged me to put my finger in his hand and uh, he held my finger and so that was the first time that things became a little bit more real for me because he was just he was so small like if you put your arm out and you look from your elbow to the the, uh, base of your palm that's how long he was like he I had still not seen my baby. They wanted me to go see him, which I vehemently did not want to go. I was in a lot of pain. I hadn't moved since my C-section, which is never a good thing. And it's something that I feel so much shame about now, still, he's almost seven, because like, I felt nothing. I just wanted to go to sleep. The neonatal period is a transitional period where the most dramatic physiological changes occur. One factor that can make a big difference in the outcome of these babies and experience of families is the team that works with them in the NICU. Dr. Goda discusses the interdisciplinary nature of the NICU teams and the support each healthcare professional provides the families. Even though these babies are very tiny, they can be very sick <laughs> and they need expertise in all the, the areas, such as um, we have respiratory therapists that assist us with managing the, the ventilator management or the respiratory management. And these are very highly trained um, professionals who know how to the intricacies of all the types of machines uh, and the physiology of the lung. And so they help us um, with managing um, the ventilatory strategies of the babies. Nutrition is a huge thing, you know, um, for these babies. So we have experts, we call them dietitians, experts in people having a focus on uh, helping moms ensure that they get adequate breast milk. We are more supportive of mothers to breastfeed, but also ensure that we can give the proper environment and the proper coaching so that the mothers get a good start on the breastfeeding. So dietitians, rest, uh, occupational therapists, occupational therapists in our preterm babies or babies, they work mostly on uh, feeding and adequate feeding. You know, babies breathe, babies suck, maybe swallow, but you've got to have that all coordinated so that the milk doesn't go down the lung. And that doesn't really occur until around 34 weeks, so 30, 33 weeks to 34 weeks of gestation. So a lot of our babies are born early that don't have oral feeds for a while. We have social workers that are absolutely um, uh, essential for, for providing care to parents you know, um, this is one of their most vulnerable times of their lives and they have their most precious child who happens to be quite ill. So our social workers work very closely with us as the team, as well as with the families to optimize all aspects of care. Next, the foremans shared some of their challenges after being discharged from the hospital, including coming home without their son and then finally being able to bring him home. So I was released and I remember coming home that night and I was in the bathroom. I wanted to shower. I was on the main floor of our house. We came home, our, our friends had been taking care of our animals. And I remember sitting on the toilet that night or just going into the shower and my milk came in. And here I was not understanding what was happening and I had no baby to feed. And it was, it was very, difficult so he he was at Sunnybrook for about six weeks Oz really struggled when we returned home he didn't grow he was released at under five pounds the day we were released it became apparent that he he had reflux and it was bad and he also um his inguinal hernias became apparent literally the day we were released so he needed surgical intervention 
and that was causing a lot of discomfort for him as well as problems with feeding and his feeding issues continued when we were home so he could only take very small volumes he fed every hour he needed to have fortification with bottles so we continue to have challenges readmissions the pneumonias all of the things that all premature parents see uh, in that first year, you know, people talk about COVID and the isolation. And I mean, it's very similar to what we experienced in that first year of life for him because mm-hmm. sanitizer was at the front door. Yep. And um, our life was very much circled around, you know, if anyone was sick, we wouldn't go anywhere. They, people couldn't come over. They couldn't kiss the baby. They couldn't hold the baby. They couldn't. It was a very particular set of circumstances. Um, we were always worried that just a simple cold would lead to a readmission or perhaps even something more sinister. I mean, you always seem to be waiting for that other shoe to drop. We really struggled with what the future would hold for him. I found it particularly difficult. I don't know if you did, but we have friends who had babies around the same time and their children would be doing certain things. Mm. They'd be a certain size, they'd be crawling, speaking. There's lots of lots of um, comparisons that are made. Yeah. So once you once you get over that, I don't know, let's say the hump where your child no longer looks like a little alien, starts to look like a little person again, right? People make these sort of off-the-cuff remarks and you almost feel like they're microaggressions, right? Like, oh, why is your baby so small? Or is that a doll? And and so, you know, how come why isn't your baby walking? Oh. Oh, they're not walking yet. Oh, my baby's 10 months. They're walking. Um, These are things that people don't really talk about. And it's almost like the wounds get reopened every time inadvertently by people who mean well. But at the end of the day, it's just another layer of hurt to add to the pain and trauma that you've already experienced. Dr. Goda shares a neonatologist's perspective on the NICU experience for patients and their families. No one was expecting to have a baby who would need to be into a neonatal intensive care unit. Even those parents who know that their child may have some, let's say, will need an operation for maybe not the complete development of one of their organs. It's it's incredible stress for families, incredible, incredible stress. But they do remarkably well, many of them do. And we, as healthcare professionals are very sensitive to the cues that the parents give us about what they need in order to feel supported. So sometimes babies stay in our NICU for months, sometimes six months. So we become sort of the medical home for the family um, and relationships develop and we you know, go through that journey with them. Sometimes babies are in our NICU for you know, 48 to 72 hours and all is good. But, you know, a lot of times babies are born with problems that no one expected, like a seizure disorder or a brain injury, those sorts of things. And so there is a lot of um, sadness and loss if the baby's not perfect or if the baby doesn't have an illness that is going to be short-lived and the baby will recover and have a good outcome. So there are tons of emotions that are going on, especially in the mother who also has these huge swings in her uh, hormones after after birth. And it's a very, very vulnerable time for the parents. But many of our families are incredibly resilient. And after a little roller coaster ride in the first week or so, they settle in and we sort of slow down the roller coaster and, and go together. Uh, to get the baby as well as we can to get the baby closer to home or to home. The Foremans tell us about some of the challenges they and other families in a similar situation face in the years following premature birth. So here's the thing that you're not told when you have a premature child. These are all the things that are probably going to happen when they're about four or five or six. And make sure you have the right support. And make sure you have the right support in place. You're not... I mean, they might tell you that your kid's going to probably be hyperactive. They do tell us they that. Do, they tell you that they're going to go, oh, they're going to be busy. But, you, you know, it's kind of said in a way that it's, it's a bit of a joke and it's like, they'll be busy, but you can manage. Not true. 
they don't tell you the risks. They're at higher risk for autism spectrum disorders. They're at higher risk for ADHD. They are at higher risk for sensory processing disorders. They, you know that there's a good chance that you're gonna be admitted for a pneumonia or, or something like that. They don't necessarily prepare you for the fact that they're going to have both auditory and visual gross motor challenges. These are not things that are routinely spoken about unless you start having those conversations because there are things you start observing. The difficulty currently in this system, mostly probably post-COVID, but even pre-COVID is when you need to get assistance for that child and you need an assessment done, you're waiting 12 months to 18 months to get your child assistance. And even though these children are known to have these challenges at a large, much larger rate than the general population of their peers, it is very hard to get them assistance. So Oscar's amazing. He's this very funny, empathetic, hyperactive, curly-haired, beautiful little boy. He's six. He'll be seven soon. He's in grade one. And he was diagnosed with sensory processing issues when he was about four because we pushed, because we knew something wasn't quite right. You could see that he was different from his peers. He needed, when he was playing with kids, he would run in between two of them for what seemed like no reason, but it's because he was looking for input. Um, spinning and strange sounds when he was seeking input very loud. While speaking with the foremans, we heard about the gaps in our healthcare system, including difficulties in access to specialist care and the financial burden associated with it. Another obstacle is the lack of specialized drugs available for premature babies in the NICU. Could you please tell us about the steps that are involved in uh, going about introducing new drugs in the NICU? Sure. So I would say that I have um, a somewhat unique perspective in drug use in the newborn ICU or the neonatal ICU because I have dual medical training in neonatal medicine and clinical pharmacology. And so I think with both of those hats on, you know, being a NICU doctor and being a pharmacologist. In adult populations, the introduction of new medicines is very regulated and very rigorous. So before a new medicine can be approved and labeled and distributed, a regulatory body like the FDA in the United States or Health Canada here in Canada requires very well-designed phase one safety, phase two safety and early efficacy, and phase three large-scale efficacy and safety clinical trials in order for a drug to be proved to be safe and effective and to be labeled and distributed to patients. So that's you know, traditional drug development. In the newborn ICU, unfortunately, most drugs have not gone through this rigorous phase one, two, three study. You just heard from Dr. Tamara Lewis, a neonatologist and the division head of clinical pharmacology and toxicology at the Hospital for Sick Children. She explains the process of drug development in the NICU setting. When pharmaceutical companies decide which drugs they want to develop and test and get labeled, a lot of times drug companies think about the size of the patient population. You know, if you're thinking about adults with heart disease, there's unlimited number. If you're thinking of adults with type two diabetes, if you're thinking of depression, okay? Think of the size of those patient populations. And then think of a medicine that's only gonna help a, a premature infant with a certain type of lung disease. And that the number of patients in that population is going to be tiny fraction of these larger adult patient populations. And so one of the barriers to developing medicines for babies in the NICU is that they are a rare patient population. And for any given disease in the NICU, 
only a subset of babies will have that. So the populations just get smaller and smaller. And so the traditional incentives to develop drugs that drug companies have in bigger patient populations, you know, one of the primary incentives being to make money off the medicines, <laughs> those incentives do not exist in the NICU. And so you really have to rely on a drug company's goodwill or um, dedication to rare patient populations in order to develop drugs through that mechanism. So interestingly, many of the drugs that have been developed specifically for the NICU population came from academic medicine, not the traditional way drugs are developed and discovered from big pharma. So this, these were neonatologists, scientists, that made discoveries and breakthroughs and potential therapy for our smallest patients and then worked with drug companies to get them manufactured and labeled. And so it's kind of a, I would say, non-traditional path for drug development that we rely on in the NICU. Other things that are unique about the NICU are uh, the patients are extremely rapidly changing and developing. So when you think about dosing medicines in a baby, a baby is very different at day one, day 14, day 28, month three. They go through extreme physiology changes and extreme growth in that time. And um, you have to take that into consideration when you're designing your drug trial, as far as the medication dosing, what you're gonna measure. And the third barrier is that drug companies perceive neonates to be an extremely risky population to perform research in because they're small, they're babies, they have worried parents. <laughs> and so I think historically, this has just been a population similar to pregnant women, neonates and pregnant women, where the drug companies feel like this population is too fragile and too high risk to get involved with. And so those, that's just three examples. There are others, <laughs> but just those three examples really make drug development and drug labeling in the NICU very challenging. Historically, very few medicines have been developed for neonatal diseases, and we use most of our medicines off-label, meaning we borrow them from other patient populations and use them in the NICU. Because of this, many of the medicines we use don't have appropriate formulations. And formulation means the actual physical way that the medicine is delivered. So for adults, the formulation is often a pill. For older children, the formulation is often like a syrup or a liquid formulation that they can easily swallow. But for newborns, you need a formulation that is um, of, a, of a dilute and low strength so that you can give tiny doses to tiny patients. And oftentimes we don't even have the correct formulations to give medicines to newborns. And so what we do is we compound the medicines, meaning we take adult formulations and modify them, or we take formulations from older children and we manipulate them in order to use them in the NICU. So when we say access to medicines in the NICU, we mean access to adequate research to prove safety and efficacy. We mean access to appropriate formulations that are developed and appropriate for this patient population. And we also mean access to um, regulatory approval, meaning that the FDA and Health Canada consider neonates specifically and look to label medications in this population. And so the good news is that over the past 10 years, for sure, there has been increasing recognition that newborn patients need really dedicated focus and intentionality in order to get medicines studied and approved. And there are multiple international collaboratives that are focusing on neonatal drug development. Dr. Pia Wintermark, a physician scientist based at McGill University, is one of these researchers working on neonatal drug development. She's currently running clinical trials in Canada and Uganda for the use of an existing drug, sildenafil, 
commonly known as Viagra, to combat neonatal brain injury. She tells us more about her research and experience with clinical trials involving premature babies. We understand that one of the major areas of study in your lab is the use of sildenafil as a treatment uh, method for brain repair. So could you tell us about how you started thinking about the alternate uses of this drug, uh, especially in the neonatal context, and a bit of the story behind the lab's focus on this drug? And we started this as a resident, and I see sildenafil being used um, uh, it's used very commonly in babies uh, for their lungs um, because it decreases the blood pressure. Sildenafil, the other name is Viagra, um, very known for other uh, side effects of the drug. But when reading the literature, I find that they um, tested the sildenafil drug um, in uh, adults for adult stroke. And then, like I say, huh, that's, that's, um, that's uh, um, interesting. Why would they test that? And then in fact, it's a drug that has plenty of side effects. And I can, uh, at least in the adult world, uh, in the animal model of adult, um, could act on the neurons and different cells of, of the brain. Um, so the idea was, okay, it's already used in baby and it's pretty safe. Um, it's easy to give, uh, but nobody checked the brain because very often in neonatology, you know, the one that uh, loved the lungs, they just look at the lungs. The one that loved the brain, just look at the brain. In, in many disciplines in medicine, is like that, you know, you just look at what you like. Um, so the idea was there, okay, like it's, it's used and at least it's safe, but has never been used in babies with, with brain injury. Um, so let's try it. Uh, we try in the animal model. Um, give very interesting results because in the animal model, the, the size of the brain injury was were less. Um, we see less neuron that die and more that new neuron that came. And we see less inflammation of the brain uh, that is caused by the asphyxia. And then we see that the, you know, the myelin, um, the, the layer around the neuron to make them specialized uh, come back. So if we could make all these things come back in human babies, um, we think we could decrease the size of injury. So, so then uh, it started the question. So we finished now the phase 1B study, which is safety. So now we'll have to test uh, efficacy. Uh, and you know that's the next step. But uh, uh, one thing I will say is, which was interesting for sildenafil is, um, uh, hypothermia, um, you have to be in a neonatal intensive care unit. Uh, it takes 72 hours and it takes a lot of nursing and all that to take care of the baby because the, um, it can have severe side effects too. Um, the interesting point of sildenafil is, is very cheap. Um, it costs nearly nothing. It can give, be, be given by mouse or by your gavage tube, so you don't need intravenous. Um, and it's already used around the world. So if it works for efficacy, it could be applied around the world, which hypothermia has been shown in a recent trial in low and middle income countries that it doesn't work. So, so the idea is then you will have a cheap treatment um, that potentially work and that's easy to give. Um, and so, so that's the point. So, so we started with the helps of the Gates family, the same phase 1B trial in, in Uganda, and that's ongoing. So, so in, in Canada and other high-income countries, for example, the, the treatment of high blood pressure in the lungs is nitric oxide. Uh, it's a gas and it's very expensive. Um, and so it's not available in low and middle-income countries. Uh, but they have sildenafil because sildenafil is cheap. It, I think it costs uh, two dollars. So they and they they are actually giving it. So so for them, um, all the stress. I have to say all the stress uh, that I had here setting up in Canada uh, from the neonatologist was they like, oh my god, you're using this drug for something we didn't use. This is very scary. Uh, over there they were there. Yeah, we use it all the time. So that's easy. Um, what we find more, more difficult over there is exactly the care of the baby um, are not the same as all what we can offer here. Um, and to check, you know, the 
safety and efficacy is very different. Conducting research involving premature babies is challenging simply due to how much we do and how much we don't know, especially when it comes to recruiting participants for trials. So, you know, having a small baby in the ICU is for sure one of the most stressful things that many families will ever experience. And so I think that is definitely part of the hesitancy of drug companies and other people feeling like it's possible to do research in the newborn ICU because these parents and these families are already under an extreme amount of stress. The way that I think about it and many other scientists think about it is that um, it does these families a disservice to continue to use unstudied drugs and continue to do um, inadequately researched interventions without ever acknowledging that what we're doing is not always based on the most sound science. And so when we approach a family to do a research study in the NICU, you have to walk a very fine line between being honest with the parents about what we know and what we don't know about, for example, the medicines that we're using in the NICU and what are the important things that we still need to learn about these medicines and how, although they're stressed and although their baby is quite sick, there are ways that their baby can contribute to knowledge advancement and helping future babies who are in the same situation and need the same medicine. In research, it is often difficult to get adequate patient participation due to various barriers. Dr. Wintermark shares the challenges that come with conducting research in this very young population. Yeah, I think every research is a a chain of obstacles and I think the, the goal of the researcher is not to stop at the obstacle and find a solution um, so uh, you know like because they are babies so they are supposed to be more fragile and people are worried I, I have to say the parents uh, once they understand you know the the ID behind and all that uh, most of the parents have been very receptive and they understand it was a new drug, you know, and we tested it in animals and we didn't know if it will have the same effect. But I will say most of them um, have agreed to, to participate. Yeah, and I think it, you're right because it's, um, you know, it's, it's not the story that they were expecting. You know, every parent's uh, expecting a normal baby that they can keep with them. Um, for this baby, you know, they are taken from them bring to an neonatal intensive care unit, um, you know, some very often intubated, you know, many lines, many things around, it's cool, they cannot touch the baby. Um, so it's definitively not what they were saying and uh, overwhelming. So I, so I think it's why uh, at least we had more ease, you know, when we met them a few times and not explain everything at once, because that was, I think, very intensive. So I think, yeah, Every researcher, and I'm sure you guys do the same with your research, you know, it's not always easy and very often doesn't go as planned. So you, then you have to find solution, you know. Dr. Lewis explains the multifactorial impact of race, income, and geographical location on neonatal health outcomes. In general, different families that live in more urban settings versus more rural settings have access to different levels of NICU care. There, there are some very interesting data about uh, racial disparities in NICU outcomes. And um, racial disparities in health outcomes is something that I'm very interested in and very passionate about. And there have been studies published that show that um, racialized infants who land at some of these, I'll call them safety net hospitals, that are maybe public hospitals, relatively under-resourced, understaffed, that those babies can have worse outcomes. And there's research data that shows that. And so for me, that's really a wake-up call to policymakers to say, if we want equitable outcomes, let's just say by race, we have to make sure that racialized communities 
that have been the most historically disadvantaged have access to the same quality of care than non-racialized communities that have had historical advantage. And so that is a conversation that's happening in neonatology right now. The disparities we have discussed so far are only amplified on the global scale. We spoke to Dr. Zulof Garputta, the Chair in Global Child Health and Policy at SickKids, also the Founding Director of the Center of Excellence in Women and Child Health in Aga Khan University, and most recently recipient of the 2022 Canada Gardner Award for his contributions to global health research. He tells us about the disparities in neonatal care between high and middle and low income nations. So we know that neonatal care has uh, really improved over the last couple of decades in high income countries and survival rates have improved tremendously. But uh, is this trend also reflected in low and middle income countries? It's highly variable. So, you know, in 2000. Uh, and and five, we published one of the first Lancet series on newborn survival, where we pointed out close to around 4 million newborn deaths were happening every year, uh, and vast majority in low and middle income countries, most of them dying in the first few days of life. The situation has improved to an extent that we are now down to about 2 million newborn deaths every year. So why, yes, there has been progress, it's been unequal. Most of the improvements have taken place in middle-income countries. Uh, in many of the poorer countries of Africa and parts of South Asia, the trend has not been as fast. It's changing, though. And what we are beginning to recognize over the last decade and a half or so is that some of that change is also related to changes in the pattern of maternal care. That is changing because many more women are going to hospitals in districts and in urban settings. But the translation to a reduction in newborn mortality and also in a reduction in stillbirths, still very slow. So as time has, has gone, newborn mortality reduction is about half of the reduction in under five mortality in terms of trends. So we have a long ways to go. So what's causing the gap between an improvement in facility-based births and yet not so much of an improvement in outcomes? So the first thing to remember is that while there is tremendous inequity across all aspects of child survival, some of those inequities are less evident when it comes to newborn mortality because it's bad across the board. Even relatively well-off families in many urban settings don't have access to good quality newborn care. Secondly, there is a very close nexus between maternal health and newborn health. Now, the residual challenges that we have about newborn mortality in many places relates to number one, quality of care. Quality of care in facilities where many births are taking place. The quality of care that we have in many places for newborns is suboptimal. It relates in some ways to the recognition of the problem and existence of guidelines for management, but also to a large extent of shortage of human resources. For, for the number of obstetricians or people trained in providing maternal care, the proportion of people trained in providing newborn care of any reasonable quality is less than a third of that number. Secondly, very importantly, we have a big gap across the world, just like we're beginning to see a gap in Canada now with nursing care. We just don't have enough nurses, and we are increasingly going to models of alternative care providers such as midwives and, uh, and, and nurse practitioners in some ways, or even trained technicians to be able to provide care for newborns in facilities. The third area is one of structural resources. By that, I don't mean the construction or availability of sophisticated neonatal intensive care units in many places, but basic care where you can provide quality newborn care where it's needed. What do I mean by that? We did a recent survey in parts of the country that I know best, rural Pakistan, one third of facilities don't have running water. So if you don't have running water in a facility, if you don't have 24 seven electricity because the energy supply is so intermittent, you can well imagine the kind of care that you'll be able to provide would be suboptimal. How do you prevent infections in that circumstance? And then, Remember that the world is not created equal. We believe across 
the world, about a third to 40% of all neonatal mortality and morbidity is now in geographies which are affected by conflict, climate change, extreme poverty, population migration and movements. And if you look in those areas, uh, you cannot construct facilities, you cannot have human resources at the same level as you have in normal circumstances. So all of these systematic barriers, systemic barriers are there. But my final point on this would be, as I've said many times before, you cannot address newborn survival and health and care without addressing the care of the mother. And if about a quarter of all births in the world will continue to take place in girls who are less than 18 years of age, where you still seem to have children having children, then addressing that problem post-birth or in the immediate newborn period is like band-aid solutions. So you have to address some of these social determinants of health to be able to impact health outcomes. As you've heard in this episode, the field of neonatology comes with many challenges. Despite this, our guests Dr. Goda and Dr. Lewis describe the most rewarding aspects of their profession. Seeing the babies get better, sending them home, if babies are sick, you go from being worried about if they're going to survive to when they're going to breathe, you know, when they're going to survive. And then there's this other phase of turning into a baby and then starting to work on things like adequate feeding, having the baby breastfeed, bottle feed, those sorts of things. Um, so I always say going from being critically ill to being ill to the stages of wellness to home. My favorite part about being a neonatologist is the opportunity to connect with families and to usher families through an incredibly stressful time in a way that minimizes really the potential trauma of having a baby in the ICU. And so the privilege of getting to be with families in that critically stressful time and helping families understand very complex medical problems and helping families make very difficult medical decisions and to feel confident in the decisions that they're making for their babies. And even to help families process and survive the experience when their babies don't live. That is such a privilege. Lastly, Kimberly offers some advice to those who may be experiencing similar challenges while in the NICU. What have you learned through your experiences with the NICU that might be helpful for others to hear? Do you have any advice for other families that might be going through this? It is a day in, day out slog. It is one of the toughest um emotional and physical times in your life. And I think that the only thing you can do to try to keep your sanity is to know that more than likely things will get better. They don't always. And, and that's part of the problem because I can't lift the worry for a parent of whether or not they get to take their child home because that worry will always exist. And so you literally have to just keep going every day and do the best that you can and ask for support when you need it, whether it be family support, meal delivery, um, things like that, because those are, those are the hardest parts. The level of um, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, um, and also PTSD in mothers of premature babies um, is exceptionally high. There is not a lot of support um, for those women. And unless you have a child who's born at one of those, you know, the Sunnybrooks, the Sinai's, the level three facilities, um, the reality of, of getting access to that kind of support is, is, isn't great. And as well, finding care providers who understand is also extremely difficult. So what I would say is access, you know, the Canadian Premature Baby Foundation Network. Um, there's lots of also local NICU groups, Facebook groups. Sunnybrook itself has a family group. So moms can join, ask questions. And I think, you know, find your tribe. 
Um, I am still very close friends with a number of NICU mums who I was there with, um, as well as mums I felt met afterward. I think that we are living in a time where healthcare is not as appreciated as it should be. Science has been undervalued in the last few years. And we need to remember at all times that people working in the fields that you work in, the people working in our NICU, the people working in our hospitals and labor and delivery, they are human, they need support, they need funding, um, and they're burnt out. And I think for me to say anything to them that they can do better, I, I think that the, they're the best, to be honest. I think you guys are the best for doing the research you're doing to help children, the future Oscars succeed and maybe not have the challenges that he has. And we need to do more to ensure that these children can get whatever care they need and they can get it early enough that they can succeed. As always, a very special thanks to our guests, Drs. Estelle Goda, Tamara Lewis, Pia Wintermark, Zulfikar Butta, as well as the Foreman family for sharing their story with us. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Sonica, and Atifa. Maddie, Hannah, and Rachel helped with the interviews. Angela and Senna helped develop content. Alex was our audio engineer, rather helped with the promotions, and Atifa was our executive producer. Keep an eye out for an article written by Soha and Maddie. Until next time. Broad Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, broadtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars.